Welcome to another Infographic Instant, Last of the Taipans, Improving the Sustainability of Long-Term Financial Flows by Improving Hong Kong's Corporate Governance. This presentation reviews the findings of a larger study that we have conducted roughly two years ago that looks at how to improve Hong Kong's corporate governance. In that study, which you'll find a link to below this video, we show the weak areas of Hong Kong's corporate governance and make several proposals to Hong Kong's black letter law in order to facilitate change. Note that nothing in this presentation reflects the views of our funders, uh, the institutions to which we are affiliated with, or even my co-authors necessarily. This presentation reflects mainly my views and therefore please treat them as such. So what is the goal of the working paper and what is a disclaimer to those findings? In the paper we tackle the issue of corporate governance as economists and like an economist we ask the question what legislative and regulatory provisions maximize the long-run flow and management of financial assets by Hong Kong domiciled financial institutions knowing that other IFCs interact strategically with us. So from that point of view our research question was relatively very narrowly defined. Uh, we simply wanted to know given that we need to make Hong Kong a bigger, badder international financial center, how can our corporate governance law facilitate us attracting those funds. So those of you who are looking at uh, broader issues about the truth of corporate governance or fairness and justice in corporate governance will be somewhat disappointed. We take a very technocratic vision of our terms of reference in this paper. Similarly, the paper which we draft is what we call exploratory research. You can contrast this with uh, conservative or conclusive research. As academics, we're here to contribute to the marketplace of ideas, often proposing uh, solutions which may not seem workable or which seem very airy-fairy at first glance. But it's the, often those proposed ideas today which become the commonplace of tomorrow. Thus, viewers that want to know what recommendations we have somewhat akin to a consultant proposing specific changes to company law or someone with a duty of care to provide conservative recommendations, this may not be the place for you. But what we do know is that the more better feedback a regulatory regime has, the better they're able to make the regulatory drafts and ultimately the performance of their international financial center. So what problem are we addressing in this paper? Of course we're looking at corporate governance. Let's take the example of the recent Alibaba fiasco in Hong Kong, fiasco if you believe the local press, and to remind the watcher uh, basically, uh, Jack Ma decided to list in the U.S. because uh, well, he specifically was against the regime in Hong Kong which prohibited multiple classes of shareholders. He wanted a regime in which he could exercise a disconnect between economic rights and voter rights. And we'll see this uh, again throughout the corporate governance literature 
is that whenever uh, founders, owners seek to divorce control from economic interest, then you have a potential misalignment of incentives. And the Alibaba case shows the typical hostage dilemma involved in corporate governance. Namely, should the shareholders, and particularly the minority shareholders, be held hostage to a founder or other senior manager whose control exceeds his economic interest in order to potentially grab returns in that company? Now we know that dual class shareholding and other types of shareholding arrangements separate this ownership and control and we also know that it favors short-termism at the expense of long-termism because naturally there will be a point where the insiders in a corporate governance regime will maximize their own stake if that comes into contrast with the larger stake and particularly minority shareholder stakes. We know from Hong Kong history that dual class shareholding and pyramids and other incentive structures which divorce separation from control reduce shareholder value and there's a growing body of literature throughout the world which shows that dual class shareholding is bad. So to give a sneak preview of our solution we basically try and create regulations which give minority shareholders a grado de facto as well as de jure rights in order to make sure that proposals like Jack Ma's don't scare away investors. The, the intuition behind this is that if minority shareholders know full well that their economic interests are represented in the company and that they can get their money back plus the rate of return which is tied to the productivity of their capital in the company. In other words, if I know I'm not going to lose anything by putting money into an Alibaba in Hong Kong, even one where Jack Ma has exorbitant control, I'm going to go ahead and put my money there anyway. Therefore, the, the question, the problem about corporate governance isn't this tiny little issue about whether Hong Kong should have dual class shareholding or not. We have to rise up a bit and look at the broader issue. And that broader issue is what are those wedges between ownership and control which scare you and I away from making investments? Before we can think about what is to be done in Hong Kong, we first have to step back and look at what is the situation now. So, what's the problem with corporate governance in Hong Kong? We know from a range of indicators that corporate governance in Hong Kong is not the bestest ever. Uh, you see in the right-hand side of the slide several indices, the World Competitiveness Report, Governance Metrics International, Survey Data, and these data compare ratings between international financial centers. And in some cases where the city data was not available, we simply use the country as a proxy. Now you'll notice two things about these indicators. First, the tremendous divergence between the two. Thus we don't have a reliable set of measurements for corporate governance, something that's very sorely needed. But also we see that Hong Kong by most measurements, not only those which you see in front of you, but others which we show in the bigger report, 
Hong Kong has a fair way to go in terms of raising corporate governance standards to those of other international financial centers. Now, stepping back and saying, well, we can't necessarily agree on where Hong Kong fits on this ladder of corporate governance, but we can agree that decreases in corporate governance, in other words, worse corporate governance practices, destroy shareholder value. And we cite econometric analysis, which shows, controlling for various factors, that slight changes in corporate governance across companies in Hong Kong they have a significant impact on share prices, on corporate value, on something called Tobin's Q, which we'll talk about a bit later. The takeaway from that second figure, figure six you see in front of you, is that bad corporate governance leads to bad shareholder outcomes, to put it very crassly. And so we know then by this econometric analysis that assets under management in Hong Kong are less than they could potentially be because uh, corporate governance in Hong Kong is less than it could potentially be. Therefore, if you believe this chain of argumentation that low corporate governance leads to low attraction of investment and low shareholder outcomes, we see that Hong Kong has lower investment than London and New York, ergo, therefore, it follows that increasing Hong Kong's corporate governance practices will help increase the flow of funds to Hong Kong, similarly to Hong Kong and New York. If you believe that chain of causality between corporate governance, uh, investment flows, and Hong Kong's ranking, then it stands to follow that there is much work to be done in Hong Kong. Now we know that corporate governance in Hong Kong is what a statistician might call out of control. And what that simply means is that you have disparate corporate governance practices, disparate quote-unquote levels, if you will, of corporate governance. We know that corporate governance practices in some industries or companies are better, whereas in they are worse in other companies. And I refer specifically to this phrase, out of control, harking back to this old uh, branch of the management literature, which said, if you want to make a process better, the first thing you have to do is standardize it. The first thing you have to do is know what level everyone is playing at, that way, when you start fidgeting with different policies and you see different changes, you can say, ah, oh, yes, it's that change in the policy which resulted in that change in corporate governance or that change in funds attracted. So the extent to which we see large variation in corporate governance practices that does not correspond with the necessities of the company, that suggests something that's out of control and an area for potential regulation. We target five areas of Hong Kong's corporate governance regime which causes this out of control that we were talking about. We talk about uh, large-scale family control and the deleterious effect that it has on investment in Hong Kong. We talk about similarly harmful effect of self-dealing. We talk about a potential concentration that leads to reduction of shareholder value. We talk about ageism and uh, codes of conduct and listing regulations which attempt to remedy the problem but fail to do so.
let's talk first about family control in Hong Kong. And we talk about the Taipans, or the, the, the big leader, the big man, if, if you will. Uh, Taipan is from the Cantonese. And when you Google the term, you'll see a movie and a book uh, that talk about the early days of Hong Kong and the business magnates that helped to make Hong Kong what it was in the last century. But if these families, like the Dirk uh, Strohan and the Brock families, if they helped to create Hong Kong in the last century, it's their progenitors in this century which are holding Hong Kong behind. We have econometric evidence that shows to a certain statistical level of comfort that families engage in earnings management, in uh, various types of corporate self-dealing, manipulation, and that these families do not release the funds which they could to their outside investors, causing lower returns, and therefore consequently causing lower investment. So you can think of it as looking down a potential future road. You see down the road that these patriarchs aren't going to give you all the money back, and therefore looking into the future and seeing you ain't going to get the money back, you say right now you're not going to put the money in in the first place. And we cite numerous studies of this type of behavior in Hong Kong, so don't believe uh, some PowerPoints you see on the internet. Now, the broader question is, okay, well, family control might, in some circumstances, harm outside investors and reduce investment in Hong Kong. Is this a policy question? We know that family companies are not immortal like their hands-off peers. Unlike the long-lived corporation, when a family corporation dies, it experiences significant decreases in shareholder value and in some cases the company goes belly up entirely and there are numerous reasons for this family holdup, uh, wars of attrition between potential successors uh, the truly irreplaceable value of the founders etc but the fact remains that writ large over a large swath of the economic value of Hong Kong's companies we see insiders playing a value-destroying role and their behavior consequently directly results in the gap between what Hong Kong uh, asset managers could raise and what they do actually raise. And so we see a carrot and stick type solution like hopefully all regulations. All regulations hopefully provide some stick-like incentive to promote coordination and they provide sweet incentives in the, the role of a carrot in order for these founders not to be bullied out of shares or control but indeed to find it in their own rational economic self-interest. And the carrot and stick approach we propose in the paper is that the uh, Securities and Futures Commission watch over arrangements which divorce ownership from control quite actively and we describe that mechanism in the paper and the carrot that we propose is that we provide families with strong enough incentives to sell out their controlling stakes through pension fund investments and through other types of uh, demand-driven mechanisms in order to encourage them to release control 
thereby helping to solve this policy problem. Uh, policy should make it profitable and not just menace uh, families to align their interests with the strangers that often hold minority stakes. Uh, similarly, we see this type of behavior with connected parties. When connected parties do business in Hong Kong, the econometric analysis suggests that it destroys what uh, investment managers call alpha. In other words, connected parties do stuff that hurts the company's stock market valuation. Now, what's more is that it is lack of information about these transactions so much as the transactions themselves which destroy this value. And we cite a couple of econometric studies on this slide, and you'll see reference to them in the paper. Uh, figure 16, which you see, shows roughly 25% of weighted average value of Hong Kong companies destroyed as a result of connected party takeover and asset sales. So I won't go into the figure for lack of time. And figure 17 right below it similarly shows that lack of information on connected party transaction also destroys this value. And that's about 20% within 10 days from a specific connected party event. In some cases, connected party transactions help the company. Insiders can arrange awesome deals with companies that help everyone. That's not what's going on here in Hong Kong. Now, the solution to this problem proposed by policymakers has been a vetting of companies and of transactions, but we know that vetting is not the only answer. What we need is an incentive compatible meaning that uh, companies and families and insiders have an economic interest to do it. So it's incentive compatible, but it's also self-enforcing. In other words, we don't want to pass a regulation that's going to require the SFC to run around the market all day long checking to see if connected parties are screwing other shareholders out of their money. We don't want regulations which require regulators to spend large amounts of our taxpayer money in order to police this market. We want to create incentives such that the market polices itself. How do we do that in practice? And to give you a taste of this solution, imagine that harmed persons actually help enforce this law. Imagine you give uh, people who are harmed by these connected party transactions other suppliers, competitors. Imagine, just hypothetically speaking, that you give them a complete and total power to snap their fingers and get the value of all that harm back. Now, under this intellectual exercise, you see it's really easy to create this incentive-compatible, self-enforcing mechanism. In the real world, of course, people cannot just snap their fingers and get the financial value of those harms restituted back to them. We need something else. One example of that something else, of course, is a whistleblower mechanism. Imagine that instead of snapping their fingers, they push a computer button to make a complaint or denouncement on connected party transactions which they can prove, and they show this to their immediate boss or to their first-line supervisor, in second cases to regulator, third cases to the press, and similarly as it's designed in other places like the US and the UK. 
In other words, imagine a wonderfully efficient whistleblower protection scheme and imagine a wonderfully efficient mechanism for receiving complaints, acting on them, and making harmed parties whole. We see that under that arrangement, the corporate governance issue would just vanish. All the harms would be restituted. How do we replicate that first best in real regulation? Now, one way to do that, of course, is to think about the distribution of ownership. Of course, we've been saying throughout this presentation that it is the concentration of ownership. It is the concentration of control, specifically, and the uh, ownership stake that such control allows. It is that concentration that allows, quote-unquote, the majority to screw the minority. And that those are the terms that you often hear this type of argument. Abstracting away from the, the pop press for a moment, we know that if we could understand the relationship between ownership, control, and shareholder value, we could write better policies to address potential harms caused by excessive control, excessive ownership, or we could understand that's just a rabbit hole, it's leading us down the wrong path, and focus our interest elsewhere. We show in figure 21 the relationship between the custodianship of the top five shareholders in Hong Kong's companies and their market capitalization in log values on a proportional scale, if you will. And assuming that that custodianship actually represents ownership, if there was a nice straight upward sloping relationship between these two variables, we could say, yeah, ownership concentration leads to market cap growth. We could say that concentration is good. It helps companies grow strong. But we can't say that right now because we can't make the link between custodianship and what is known as beneficial interest. And beneficial interest basically says, well, who actually owns the shares that may be a stock brokerage house is holding in its own name? We don't know who owns these shares. We don't know how highly concentrated these shares are. We know that the SFC does provide announcements saying, hey, this particular share has a high concentration and that investors should be extra careful when investing in these shares. Okay, we see that uh, warning by the SFC, but it would be just so much better for investors and, of course, for researchers to be able to say that the probability of harm in investing in shares with concentration Y is X. In other words, if we could create a register relating to beneficial interest in these shares, we would have a much better position on which to make policy. We wouldn't need to warn shareholders in this kind of ominous way the SSC does, ooh, scary, about high concentration shareholding. We would instead be able to provide very specific relationships between such concentration and the potential for self-dealing, for shareholder value destruction, etc., such that investors could make their own decisions. That simultaneously increases market values and decreases the burden on the SFC. 
it is what we were talking about previously, this wonderfully self-enforcing, uh, value-maximizing type of policy. So how do we get to this state? How can we create regulations which help constrain potentially concentrated ownership, help constrain potential family self-dealing, as well as provide incentives to the regulators in order to protect you and I? The best way to do that, of course, is to embiggen the minority. And I choose this word using that classic academic reference, The Simpsons, and it is quite literally in beginning. It is not, it's not only making the minority bigger as a proportionate class of shareholders, but it is also deepening their economic interests in the corporation. It is giving them control rights, economic rights, and everything they need in order to help insiders maximize the value of the pie for everyone. Now, ensuring the majority have incentive compatible and self-enforcing reasons to take lip from these minorities requires policy. Uh, minorities aren't going to take to the streets like they did during the Umbrella Revolution and say, oh, uh, we want to change enlisting rule 72.5. Instead, we propose in our report two activities which can help vest these economic interests in, with minorities in order to promote the healthy development of the market overall. The first thing, of course, is to deepen pension markets. To the extent that the pensions operating in Hong Kong have the incentive to buy the shares of these entrenched families and concentrated companies to the extent that they're profitable, valuable, etc., to the extent that pensions can provide these deep pools of liquidity which are needed to attract these shares away from these families, that would help improve market quality for everyone. The second thing that we can do to embiggen the minority is to reform open-ended investment vehicles. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the way to uh, develop open-ended investment vehicles and we actually go line by line and provide the outline for a rule which creates these open-ended investment vehicles which looks very different than both what the regulators and maybe some of the market actors have been pushing for in the past. Now the other way of promoting this incentive compatible self-enforcing mechanism is to give minorities incentives to gripe. So not only do they have the economic reasons to gripe, but they also have the way of turning gripes into to returns, if you will. Uh, the law is a wonderfully efficient machine for turning words into money. And, and it's that mindset that we have to use when we're thinking about corporate governance regulation in Hong Kong. Uh, whistleblowing ordinance, uh, empowering and bigoting the minority to find value-destroying activities and say, look, this is wrong, receiving the value of the harms done to them. And it's the words in that whistleblowing ordinance or ultimately regulation which are going to have a positive rate of return on those minorities who are militating for their own rights. Two other areas which we talk about in the paper are derivative actions and unfair prejudice. At present, both of those avenues look somewhat unlikely, 
but developing uh, efficient markets, maybe inside the courts, maybe outside the courts, where investors can sue for their rights while simultaneously promoting the value of the whole, that only helps to embiggen the minority as well as the majority. Now, it's up to regulation to set the costs and benefits of this uh, lip-taking and griping and all of these activities aimed at embiggening the minority. It's up to regulation to set the benefits of empowering minorities high enough such that it exceeds the costs to interests currently operating in Hong Kong. How does regulation play with these costs and benefits? How can we twist the incentives of the insiders as well as the outsiders to quote-unquote do the right thing? Where do the right thing for the purposes of this paper consists of maximizing shareholder value in order to attract investment from outside of Hong Kong, thereby maximizing the risk-adjusted value of investment in Hong Kong in the long run, taking into account strategic interaction from other IFCs. There are four areas of regulation which can help change the incentives of insiders as well as outsiders. The first area relates to whistleblowing, and in Recommendation 4, we specifically encourage the introduction of provisions into the Hong Kong Code of Corporate Governance, which acts as a surrogate for standard whistleblowing regulation, or in some cases legislation, that you see in other countries. Of course, we would have to study econometrically here in Hong Kong to see how such whistleblowing provisions would affect the market before the provisions actually come into force, but I guess that's our job. The second area of regulation relates to lowering the cost of complaints, and we see this in Recommendation 6 as increasing information to shareholders and others about the use of the new arbitration ordinance, such that if I am an outsider being screwed by an insider, I can quickly and easily undergo this arbitration procedure in order to get what has been taken from me back, as well as to create, hopefully over time, a codex, if you will, of decisions which regulators can look at in order to improve market quality. It's unclear if the sum of these arbitration decisions can contribute to regulation in the same way that court judgments can contribute. Uh, the third area relates to further opening the cat bag, and that specifically is the cat bag of insider control and what we as outsiders can see insiders doing and uh, recommendation 8 talks to that by encouraging shareholder knowledge about companies that a mutual fund holds. The final area relates to collective action and we've seen this proposal before in the HAMS proposal, the Hong Kong Minority Shareholder Association, and it was that attempt at creating an association all those years ago which said, well, Insiders are pretty well coordinated. Uh, families coordinate well within themselves, but also even between families, there is this natural culture of communication, shared values, which promotes their interests. 
What do the minority shareholders get? So to the extent that we can artificially create this grouping in order to act as a counterbalance against this natural grouping which already exists, we have created what economists know as a second best solution. It's something that we wouldn't normally do if markets are operating perfectly, but we know they're not operating perfectly because we have all this econometric evidence I just showed that, that clearly proves that Hong Kong corporate governance markets are not working efficiently. And therefore, this second best regime of creating this minority shareholder association is the way of promoting the voting power, the political power, if you will, in order to help agglomerate these control rights in order to help ensure that minorities have a proportionate controlling interest, which then reflects into their economic interest. Awesome corporate boards make for awesome companies. Everybody knows that. And we also know that bad directors eventually lead to bad companies. If directors are so important to a company's well-being, why aren't they professionalized in the same way that uh, investment managers, in the same way that lawyers? Why are corporate directors just left to their own devices, whereas in we have very well-defined structures for every other area of corporate life? It's the lack of a director's career path, which to date has stifled, especially the young and ambitious, from jumping in and becoming directors at very early age, and the very capable from jumping in. Uh, we all know that directorship is something that is tied as much to connections, to social power, economic power. It's tied to capacity, of course, but not in the same way that a horse race for the perfect eye banker or the gruesome competition for uh, achieving a silk is amongst lawyers. We know that that being a director is not as technocratic and what that implies for Hong Kong is that longevity rather than perhaps skill is a key requirement for directorship and we see this in the data looking at uh, figure 31 we show the distribution by age of directorships in Hong Kong and what we see is that a fair amount of these directorships are procured after a person has reached his or, well, almost always his 50th birthday, though increasingly it's hers. We know that the number of directorships that a director takes on should test them, challenge them, but not overwhelm them. And we show in figure 32 the relationship between the number of directorships uh, various directors have in Hong Kong and the returns to those companies as reflected in the share price over time. And what we see is that about six uh, directorships tends to correlate with those investors on these fast shareholder value growing companies Whereas in we see in the few cases where directors have served on 12 or more boards, those companies doing quite poorly. So what we see is we see a market for directorships which has very little uh, 
self-replication, very little uh, education. It's not possible to jump on a director path and say, Hi, I'm training to be a director. Become a director and show based on how good your company is doing whether you're a good director or not. And so we see then that the current directors are overloaded. Very good directors might have an excessive amount of boards on which they serve, which ultimately harms boards. That is a collective action problem which clearly argues for public policy. We know from the data that we show in the paper that uh, demand for directors exceeds supply, and we propose two ways of increasing director supply. First is that we want to use the Hong Kong Stock Exchange and private associations like the Hong Kong Institute of Directors, but there are others, to create a career ladder for directors. By having this career ladder, it will help speed up the path to directorship and help professionalize it, making sure that directors have a broad range of skills rather than maybe just that specific skill that helped vault them to the commanding heights of the boardroom. The second way to increase director supply is to promote further disclosure of directorships and you'll see more about that in the paper. Now for many people simply increasing the number of independent non-executive directors is the solution to Hong Kong's corporate governance ails. So imagine that you have a large corporation which is bullied by its family shareholders or concentrated insider shareholders and they are subsequently engaged in self-dealing. Well the argument goes that these independent non-executive directors will stand up and say look these policies are wrong and I'm gonna fight for shareholder value and they're supposed to uh, serve as a ballast in the boardroom to help maximize shareholder value. But we do not see that at all. Uh, you can look at David Webb's website to see that doesn't happen. And he rails uh, against uh, independent non-executive directors in Hong Kong quite vehemently and with just cause. But more to the point is that the econometric evidence also shows that that independent non-executive directors get captured. And how do we know that? We know that because when there's no concentrated family control, when there's no concentrated shareholdership, independent directors tend to correlate with good outcomes uh, depending on the study. It could be the share price, it could be uh, self-dealing, it could be uh, a range of factors. But when these factors are present, when you have a family in place, we see that the presence of an independent non-executive director in fact harms shareholder value. Now that that's a non-intuitive finding. It's the, the more independent non-executive directors you put on the board, actually the more harm you're doing to the board. We don't know why that is, of course. We only see this econometric evidence. but. The obvious implication is that these interests put independent non-execs on the board exactly to camouflage their activity. Of course, further research has to go into this. I, I, I won't bet my career on this finding, but we do see in the data this very startling association that independent non-executive directors can end up doing more harm than good when they are 
functioning in the presence of particular types of boards. Now it doesn't matter whether you have six of these guys, 33% of these guys, whatever. It's that deep underlying structure of incentives that you have to get at. And the other proposal for improving corporate governance is to say, okay, well, even if these independent non-executive directors aren't doing the job, we have this amazing disclosure regime in Hong Kong. Uh, companies have to publish everything under the sun, the number of directors, what meetings they go to, what they ate for lunch, uh, etc. And it, investors will plow through this piles of crap, basically, and say, oh, you know, John Doe didn't go to uh, the fourth meeting out of the series of six, and therefore I'm going to sell my shares. Uh, that's a completely neophyte vision of corporate governance, which I regret to say has been made popular by my own peers in academia. So I certainly don't condemn CLP or Hong Kong's regulatory authorities by any stretch of the imagination, because they got this idea from us. But I think I'm here to say, look, it ain't working. It's time to fix it. Now, how do we fix it? Uh, there are several uh, proposed changes we make to the listing rules which will help improve oversight of Hong Kong's companies. We already talked about the minority shareholders NGO, if you will, this uh, minority shareholder association. We also talk about revisions to the Hong Kong Exchange's Code of Corporate Governance. There's a new one that's online and it's very specific and to some extent, we haven't had time to look through and see to what extent our proposed changes reflect the changes in the new version, but on the slide you see in front of you, we've actually gone ahead and rated section by section the quality of the various provisions in the uh, Code of Corporate Governance under the listing rules. Now, I know what you're thinking yourself, well, that, that's a bunch of garbage. Uh, you can't look at provisions individually, you're using your own subjective judgment. Yes, that's true. We provide some uh, explanation of the, of the methods that we use, but it's a useful starting point for debate. And what we see, we, we can use the experience of other countries in order to assess this type of quality. And part of this assessment is even some of the obvious common sense things that you would expect in a code of corporate governance, such as uh, are they just abstract admonitions to directors, like be good and do the right thing, or are they something more specific? And what we see is that the quality of the code of corporate governance is low, but don't worry, we propose specific changes to it. Instead, we think it's industry groups that are best able to judge compliance with particular areas of the code and particular areas of the company's own code of corporate governance. So to that end, we would promote more oversight from uh, internal auditors, from uh, third parties who are in the industry but may not necessarily be investors. They know the company and they know the sector much better than institutional investors even who might only have a passing uh, understanding of the company and certainly won't have grown up in the, the dirty nuts and bolts part of the industry for the majority of their professional life.
Now, to that extent, we have to ask, to, does the firm's corporate governance reduce investment in secondary markets for its, for its own securities? And it's the company's own internal auditors that can best answer that question. They can do the review from beginning to end and say, look, we have assessed according to the internal audit framework uh, compliance under standard 62.3. We've traced it all the way through to uh, investors' perceptions, and we find this impact. And that is much more persuasive than just saying, well, somewhere out there on the internet, there's a guy looking at the corporate governance report, and he might or might not be taking investment decisions. So stepping back, taking the argument full circle, let's think about reforming Hong Kong's corporate governance legislative regulatory framework overall. Uh, returning to the case of Alibaba, we see that simply tweaking the listing rules, simply saying, okay, Jack Ma, you can have a dual-class shareholding structure, that ain't the solution to this problem. The core problem is this divergence between economic interests and control, which lead insiders to do things that hurt outsiders, and ultimately potential investors in Hong Kong's market. Now, changing the listing rules is a bit like treating typhoid with chemotherapy. In this case, a dual shareholding class structure backpedals on rules which we know work already. We know this from Hong Kong's historical experience, but we know this from a raft of empirical studies. And what is worse is that this dual shareholding reform doesn't actually deal with the problem that we're trying to solve. Now, what is that problem? The problem is aligning Jack Ma's interests with the rest of us. Does a dual-class shareholding structure do that? No, it actually takes us further away from the optimal outcome. And we showed step-by-step step that by aligning that interest, we actually align insiders' interests, and we align even the interests of those investors in Mexico City, in New York, in Ulaanbaatar, thinking, look, should I put my money in Hong Kong securities or in London securities? We know that the more confidence that Ulaanbaatar guy has, once he gives his money to an investment manager here, he's going to get that money back plus more. The more comfortable he feels, the more money he's going to give to Hong Kong. So what's the solution to this problem? Well, like we said throughout the presentation, just ignoring all this intellectual stuff for the moment, buying Jack Ma out, aligning his interests, saying, well, you want control which is disproportionate to your economic interest in the company. What can we give you to incentivize you to change your mind? What can we give you to agree that, hey, one share, one vote, or hey, the 1% the shareholder guy is going to have just as much a ride as I'm going to have. The other solution, of course, is buying the rest of us in. Just like we're buying Jack Ma out, we're buying the rest of us in. We are embiggening the minority and creating this equilibrium between the, the shareholders so that everyone is pushing for the company's long-term interests. And throughout the presentation, I hope we've convinced you that an exchange is like any other market. The Hong Kong Stock Exchange is just like an Apple exchange. The exchange itself wants sellers that offer the best quality for the lowest price and on the seller's side, the highest profit. 
in the apple market, obviously you want very yummy apples. The buyer wants them and the seller wants to make a lot of money so that he can go and drive his nice car down Causeway Bay or whatever he does. Similarly, the Securities Exchange wants the best quality of securities, quality being reflected in its price, being reflected in its, the price that the security commands for the long-run returns that it is able to provide, while simultaneously giving the company lots of money in order to do what it does best, in, this, in Alibaba's case, providing us with cheaper bags and other, other stuff. So the focus of our analysis should actually be on the companies themselves rather than the exchange. We're chasing uh, a furry bunny down the rabbit hole by, by looking at dual-class shareholder structures. We don't want to tweak the exchange so much as think about the companies themselves and ask what rules can we put in place which maximize the value of those companies. And to do that, we have to align non-central interests to the rights of the lister ultimately. And to that end, we ask, well, wherever Jack Ma lists, will the returns that investors make for that investment justify the risks? And how do we design a market which attracts money in order to fund the next great things? This has been another Infographic Instant with Brian Michael.